as we are starting this new year still, um, and we're gearing back up, um, I'm going to do something a little bit interesting in Judges, in that I want to I, I back up, and we're not going to jump into our next chapter with Gideon until um, a couple of weeks after Dave Rothkar's here, um, and, and we'll jump back into Gideon and Judges chapter 6 then. But I'm going to back up, and I'm going to give um, some perspectives on, on some broader themes that are within the book of Judges, and want to talk about those today. But to introduce that, I want to tell you about um, a book that I've uh, been reading um, I asked Dawn to get me this book um, for Christmas. It's called Bullies and Saints. Uh, the subtitle is An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. It is written by John Dixon, who is um, a, 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 an Australian historian. He teaches at Ridley College, solid evangelical. Um, and uh, he he's taken a perspective on church history that is really fascinating. And um, he's going to talk about the bullies and the saints, and not the bullies who are the bad guys, but Christians who have been bullies, and Christians who've acted like saints. Uh, and so he's, he's talking pretty honestly about that. And um, I, I would summarize the book this way. There's really three things going on in the book. The first part of it is, and it's kind of scattered throughout church history in a flow, but the history of Christianity is full of horrendous and abuses of power in the name of Christ. Um, and we just have to be honest that that in the history of Christianity, Christians have done some awful things. The Crusades, uh, there have been people who have um, used Christianity to um, support slavery, and, and, and people have done things in the name of Christ, um, both long-term movements, but also individuals who have, have abused their power in the name of Christ to, to do some pretty horrible things. And, and he talks pretty honestly about those throughout church history. That's not the only thing. He's not just trying to make us look bad. He also, in the book, is going to tell us that the history of Christianity is full of unimaginable acts of love and compassion in the name of Christ. Um, his point is, most of the things that we enjoy and celebrate in Western civilization come from the Christian influence. Um, Christians are responsible for um, hospitals. <laughs> hospitals used to just be for the care of the elite, and, and Christians are responsible for um, for hospitals, for everybody. Christians are responsible for orphanages, uh, caring for elders. There are so many good things that Christians are responsible for that if it weren't for the Christians having initiated them, a lot of the things that we enjoy in, in our society would not be there if it weren't for the Christian influence of people who know the love of Christ and want to share that with others. So it's a real um, balanced perspective of here's the bad stuff we've done, we've got to be honest, and and here's the good stuff that's come as well. Um, but through that, there's a thread in this book uh, where um, he's trying to communicate this. The church is at its best in history and today when it performs the beautiful tune of Christ well. The beautiful tune is loving others, including our enemies, and treating every image bearer with dignity and value, which includes sharing the gospel clearly and with grace. Um, Eventually, at the beginning of the book, he eventually gets to it. And then at the end of the book, and kind of a thread through there, is this idea that, that Christ gave us a, a, an ethic of love that said not just love others and love people like us, but even loving our enemies and, and treating everyone as an image bearer. Um, and, and as image bearer, they deserve to be valued and treated with dignity and honored if they're foreigners, whoever they happen to be. Um, 
And that includes um, sharing with them the gospel because, um, I mean, that's what matters for eternity if we really value them with dignity. Um, and so he, he kind of gives us that, that, that Christ is the one who've, who's told us to live this beautiful tune. And sometimes we, we do it pretty poorly. Sometimes we do it fairly well. And, and one of the things he does in calling it a tune is um, he, he talks about how well we play the tune. Christ wrote this beautiful tune of, of his life and how he laid his life down for others. Um, he gave himself up to benefit others, and he, he, he gave his very life to draw us closer to God. And, and he told us to live that way, too. He told us to love those around us. And the thing that sets Christianity apart is not only just loving those near you and a part of your family and in your group, but even loving your enemies and, and laying your life down for them and, and doing whatever you can to draw them to God. Um, and that's the tune that, that Jesus played while he was here. And then he's given us the opportunity to play that, well, that, that um, tune as well, that tune of, of love and compassion and and drawing people to God. Um, and yet, throughout history, um, Christians have played it really poorly, and Christians have played it really well. And um, today, some Christians are playing it really poorly, hatefully and angrily, um, dismissively of other people, and, and some people are playing it very well and loving people around them. Um, and in our lives individually, today, we have the opportunity to play that tune well today or to play it really poorly today. Um, as, as John Dixon would say, the church is at its best in history and today, and, and you and I are at our best when we perform the beautiful tune of Jesus well. The beautiful tune is loving others. That's what Jesus said. Um, It's kind of the big message of the first big sermon that he preaches, the Sermon on the Mount. Loving others, and then again, what makes us distinct is including your enemies and treating every image bearer, no matter who they are, treating every image bearer with dignity and value. And if we really treat them with dignity and value, it includes we're going to share the gospel clearly and with grace because this life is is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away, but eternity is forever. And so investing in people's eternity, um, playing a beautiful tune with your life that will draw people toward the gospel is, is what Christ has less, left us here to do. But, but we don't always do it well. And part of it is we get, we get subtly um, drawn into other value systems. We get subtly drawn into playing other tunes through our Lifetime, and this is where I want to connect this back to Judges, and and um, and rather than moving ahead with the next story, I want to back up and, and take some themes through Judges um, that are gonna gonna ask you to think more globally about um, issues in Judges, and and in particular, I want us to think about how much it's it's how easy it is for us to think of these people and the idolatry that they got involved in <laughs> and, and kind of think, how could they do that? How could they, how could they find themselves worshiping other gods? Um, and, and how could they miss the point so badly 
um, and, and do it again and again and again. And in, in order to focus on that, what I want to do is I want to take a look at idolatry and leadership in, in the book of Judges. And by idolatry, I want to clearly cast the vision that we're not talking about trinkets in your house as idolatry. That's not what I mean. I don't mean that you have images of other gods in your house. You probably don't. My guess is a lot of the Israelites who were got caught up in it, they didn't have trinkets in their house. What they were doing is they were just succumbing to the cultural norms. <laughs> and the cultural norm for them said, um, you know what? If you just do these things that kind of everybody does, you you offer these sacrifices this way, you, you show up at the, the temple of Baal, you you, you may um, participate in a festival that's worshiping Asherah. Um, if, if you just do those things, you know what? You, you'll live the good life. Now, for them, what that meant was fertility. And we say that fertility, we don't think about it because we don't have an agricultural uh, context. But, but it just means you'll be blessed and you'll have all that you want. You'll have abundant crops. You'll have... Um, uh, plenty of rain, your, your cattle will flourish and your family will grow big. You'll have, you'll have um, the Canaanite dream. If you just do what the, everybody around you is doing, because you know what, your, your God, he's, he's got all these rules and regulations, and when you get it wrong, he disciplines you. Our God, if we just do these things, and actually they're a lot more fun than what your God's asking you to do, when you do those things, you'll be blessed. You'll, you'll have the good life. And I think it's too easy for us to think about, oh gosh, how could they have these little trinkets and worship them? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, real idolatry of, of value systems. And, and when I talk about leadership, I'm not talking about um, you stepping forward and becoming you know, some powerhouse figure out front. What I mean by leadership is you being a leader in your community, in your family, just in your sphere of influence, not because you're big, but because you're having an influence for the sake of Christ. And throughout the book of Judges, there are these, um, there are these champions who, who do something for God, but the impact doesn't last because they don't have the character to be truly leaders for God. Now, this, this whole situation is because if we're not careful to keep the world and its value systems at bay, God says he's going to allow it to get us. He's going to allow it to overwhelm us. Um, This has been the case uh, for a long time. When when Joshua completed the conquest of the land, he had controlled throughout the the promised land. He controlled all the strategic cities. He hadn't driven out all of the people. That's what they were supposed to do after Joshua. But he controlled all the strategic cities, this um, this great victory to gain control Um, At the end of his life, in Joshua chapter 23, Joshua says this. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Indeed, they will become snares and traps for you whips on your back and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Joshua warned them and he said, "Um, if you don't drive them out, it's going to become a problem. If you don't keep them at bay, they will begin to have an influence on you and it's going to trip you up. 
Um, when we get to the story of Gideon, it's three chapters, chapters 6, 7, and 8. Um, when, we, when we get there, we're going to see Gideon has a real up-and-down career. He is, Gideon is no um, thriving um, spiritual giant. In fact, um, he starts off um, kind of sheepishly hiding. He, he should, he's threshing in a wine press, by the way. A, a threshing should take place on the top of a mountain, but he's so scared he's not going to thresh on the mountain. He's down in a, in a wine press threshing. He, he's hiding because he's fearful. And almost sarcastically, God shows up and said, hey, Gideon, you mighty warrior. <laughs> a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. But, but Gideon steps up, and he does do some good things, and he has some, some acts of faith, and then he, um, he has some moments that are not so good. And, but at the end of his life, um, not only does he leave us with um, one uh, descendant who's the most despicable ruler in the entire book, but at the end of his life, it says this. Gideon made the gold, this is gold he's collected after the victory over the Midianites. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Orpha, his, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Because he didn't, he didn't push away the value systems of the world, and he actually collected the gold and made it into something, and, and that became their idol. It wasn't even a Canaanite idol, it was... It was his victory and his success that he made a monument of, and that became a snare to him and his family. And then his family, actually, they murder one another. <laughs> um, and it leads to this guy named Abimelech, who's just a horrible character. Um, idolatry will become a snare <laughs> for us. And so I'm going to give us some lessons on idolatry and then make a transition and talk about our involvement in and how we can be leaders and what God is looking for in that. So first of all, I just want to start off by saying idolatry has always been and now is a snare for God's people. It's always been there. This is not something that's ancient. It's so easy for us to think, oh, yes, in the Old Testament, because they had those little idols or big idols or big Asherah poles, whatever they had, it was. we see it as something... Um, very physical that we don't have any of. But it's always been a snare for God's people. Um, It begins in the book of Judges this way. Uh, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. This is Judges chapter 2, way back at the beginning. In chapter, uh, the the book begins with kind of Israel's military failure. They didn't drive them out. And then their spiritual failure, they started to worship the other gods. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into this land. I swore to give your ancestors. The Lord says this, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. Um, this was their problem. They didn't, they didn't drive it out, and it became a trap and a snare for them. It became um, this problem. And God said, I'm going to let that be the discipline. But God says he, will, he won't break his covenant. We break covenant all the time, but God never does. That leads me to my second point. God is always faithful to his covenant. He will bless 
and discipline his children. In his covenant, he's promised us that. If you're a child of God, you'll be disciplined by him. He's going to be faithful to that. But he wants to bless us. Um, We'll think about it later, but in the great Shema passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It goes on to say that he, he wants to bless people to a thousand generations. But he's just enough that he will discipline people to the third and fourth generation. Just think about that that comparison. He'll discipline to third or fourth generation, but he wants to bless thousands. God would rather bless you than discipline you, but he will be faithful to do both. When the world's value system overcomes you, he will discipline you, and, and he will get you to turn back to him if you're a genuine child of his. And that leads me to another point. God will use persecution and oppression to turn his people back to him. He sometimes uses the oppression and persecution of of these places we want. Um, The pattern throughout the the Old Testament is this, that that God's people want to worship the gods of these other nations. And and God says, if you want to worship their gods, I'm just going to let them rule over you. Um, you want to worship the Midianites' gods? Then we'll just let them rule. <laughs> you want to worship the Amorite gods? I'm just let them rule. Um, you, do you want to um, you want to worship the Babylonian gods? I'll let them invade and take you captive. They're going to take over the whole land. Um, and God's not doing that because He's mean. God's doing that because he wants to turn us back to him. That's the theme throughout, throughout the book of Judges. The Midianites, the Canaanites, the, the Amorites, the Amalekites, who, who, whoever the oppressing nation is, they oppress until the people turn back to the Lord and they cry out to him. God uses this oppression um, to, to discipline us, but that discipline is because he's mad at us. It's because he knows the most productive thing we could do is turn back to him and and repent of that idolatry and and reorient ourselves to him. And and in reality, we bring these consequences of idolatry on ourselves. When we buy into the world system and, and we make the world's value system, the Canaanite dream, the American dream, when we make that dream the thing that really drives us, then it becomes the oppression to us. And, and when, we, when we buy into that, um, a bigger house and a, and a nice car. And by the way, I have a nice house and a nice car. I, have, I do have that. But when that is what drives you, and that, that is what is motivating all of, of what's going on in your life, when, when that is what's driving you, it becomes oppressive. And, it, and God says, I'm going to let it get you. Or even when, um, and it's become a little bit different in, in our society because Everything is so polarized in so many different ways. Um, if what becomes most important to you is one tribe or the other tribe, <laughs> rather than your complete and utter dedication to the Lord, but what becomes more important to you is either the cultural norms, the American dream, or whatever tribe you happen to be associating with, if that becomes the biggest thing, that will become the thing that oppresses you. <laughs> God will let that happen. So let me define the idolatry now. Okay, I've gone through this. This is where I want to define idolatry. Idolatry is any priority that's greater than worshiping the Lord fully. Anything that's in your life that is 
more important to you than worshiping the Lord fully with your life. I don't mean like right now on Sunday mornings. I mean with your life. Is, is the priority of worshiping the Lord what drives you on Tuesday and on Thursday? And again, I don't mean that means you need to be a missionary or you need to come to church every day or you need to have a job like my job. But the question is, is the priority of worshiping the Lord fully with the resources and the time and the calling and the gifts that he's given you, is that the thing that drives your life? Or is there something else that's a more of a priority that's controlling? And look around and see where you're investing your time. Is there regular time that you're connecting to the Lord and you're, and it feels natural when somebody uh, is in need, it feels natural for you to say, hey, let's pray about that. And you actually pray about it. Does that feel natural? Because the Lord's just natural part of your life. Does it feel natural for people to talk and for you to have scripture that runs through your head to say, I think this informs that. And not that you can quote Bible verses or pompously report some three-point sermon of mine, but does, do biblical values and biblical realities go through your mind in conversations? Is worshiping the Lord fully really the, the orientation of your life? Or, or, or you say, well, you know, I serve once a month. Really? You, you, that's a priority of your life? Um, idolatry is any, any priority, anything that drives you, anything that's, that really determines how you're living, anything other than fully worshiping the Lord. And, and fully worshiping the Lord is, yes, it is prayer and singing and reading the Bible. It is that stuff, but it's also just your, your orientation to life, how you think about life. And you know what? Idolatry usually looks like we're simply fitting into the world's value system. That's what it looks like. Idolatry doesn't look like you look different Idolatry is you look like everybody around you. And again, I'm going to frame this in in our polarized culture today. You look like all of this group or you look like all of this group. But whatever group, tribe you're kind of associating with, it, it means you're fitting into that group really, really well. Rather than saying, the groups don't matter. What is, what does God have for me today? What is, what is the value system the Lord would have me leave or live? Um, the New Testament talks about this really clearly in Romans. Paul says, therefore, I exert you brothers through the mercies of God, because he's so merciful and saved us through the gospel. That's Romans one through 11, because he wants to bless us more than discipline us. I exert you brothers through the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may approve what is the good and well-pleasing and perfect will of God. Um, The sacrifices you should make is not sacrificing all you have to the world system, getting what the world promises. It should be sacrificing yourself to the Lord. That's pleasing to him. And it only makes sense because of what he's done for us. The, The tune that he played with his life and the tune that he asks us to play Um, it makes sense. It's a reasonable service for him. 
But the challenge is, just like the people who lived in the time of Judges and the people who lived in the time of Paul and you living today, the challenge is to not be conformed to the world's value system, but to be transformed, to, to, be, to be different than the world, not looking like the world, by renewing our minds constantly, constantly um, refreshing our, our understanding and, and our dedication to him. So that it's not just a, a, a mental thing, it's that we're approving and we're proving to others. We're playing the right tune and it's well-pleasing. It sounds good. It's the perfect will of God and we're living it out in our lives. The last thing I want to tell you is it's so subtle. Idolatry makes sense in the, in the moment. Um, in the moment, it makes sense because you're just fitting in. <laughs> you look like those Canaanites who... All they're saying is, you know, fertility happens when we go up to the temple and and we worship in this way. Fertility happens. Well, it makes sense. Who who wants um, scrawny cattle and small harvests? Nobody wants that. We want fertile and and plump cattle and and big harvests and and large families. We, We want all of that. And idolatry makes sense. Because everybody around us is doing it. Everybody around us is saying, oh, that's the path to the Canaanite dream. That's the path to the American dream. That's the path to a life of comfort or peace. It makes sense in the moment. Let's stop being judgmental of these people who lived in the time of the judges who kept getting caught up in idolatry, and it didn't last very long, and they're caught up in it again. Folks, it makes sense to us in the moment. And then I do want to transition to, to leadership, but I want to say something about leadership before I even change the slide. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of leadership. <laughs> I'm a follower of Christ. Um, not a fan of all the leadership stuff. I think most of it is secular principles, even the stuff that's been brought into the church. Um, we need to follow Christ. Christ himself never called himself a leader. He called himself a servant. And so I think the best way to lead is to serve. Um, But when I'm talking about leadership, I'm not talking about having a powerful position. Um, Being a dominant leader, being an SNL, a strong natural leader, that's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about leadership, I mean um, a person who has an influence on their peers, a person who has an influence in their family, a person who has an influence on their friends, that you're, you're leading in that way. I don't mean you're standing up leading in front of somebody and you're gathering people around you. Um, leadership is, is having a positive spiritual influence on the people in your sphere of influence. That's what it is. And so I want to make some observations about that. Lasting spiritual inf- impact requires faithful leaders. Throughout the book of Judges, these warlord chieftain guys, who we call judges, um, they are raised up by God because God is going to be faithful to deliver his people. But not a single one of them leaves a lasting impact. It it lasts for eight years, for 20 years, for 40 years, um, but it it never leaves a lasting spiritual impact. It, it, It lasts for a little while but then they just go right back to the same old stuff. Here's what it says. 
This is Judges chapter 2 again in the introduction to the book. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as that judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groanings under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. It just got worse and worse and worse. And that is what we will start to see rapidly in the book of Judges, is it just going to get worse and worse and worse. As I mentioned, by the end of it, literally no one is even mentioned by name because they've lost their humanity. They've lost their identities. It's just going to get worse and worse because none of these people were spiritual. Yes, God used them. And at times, I'll make this point later, at times God filled them with the Spirit to accomplish it, but they were not spiritual people. God can use you and you not be spiritual. God can use me and me not be spiritual because God's going to do what he's going to do. And he sometimes has to use really flawed people like Gideon, (laughs) scared Gideon, threshing down in the wine press, And God says, okay, mighty warrior, I'm going to use you. Not because he was spiritual, not because he was qualified, but because God is faithful. But to leave a lasting spiritual impact, God God wants faithful people to do that. But so many times leaders are corrupt. Um, And and these leaders, we'll see this in Gideon, he becomes a leader and then it gets gets corrupted by the power. Corrupt leaders are interested in personal power and influence. They're not interested in spiritual influence, which may make them look like a servant like Jesus Christ, who suffered on behalf of others. They're looking for personal power and using that personal power to influence. That's what a corrupt leader is like. Listen to an interview this past week, um, and Russell Moore said something really interesting. I just want you to think about it. He said this, it's not that power corrupts, but that corrupt people seek power. Um, he goes on to say, corruptible people seek power. I actually think all of that's true. I think power corrupts. <laughs> I, I think corrupt people seek power, and I think sometimes people who are already corrupt corruptible people seek power. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're in a powerful, influential position, you are corrupt. God's looking for people in leadership, powerful positions who love him with all their heart and they're seeking all good things. And I see people in the room who I think this applies to you, good people who are in significantly important positions who love the Lord. But it is a dangerous thing to be seeking that kind of power on your own because Power does corrupt, and corrupt people seek power, and corruptible people seek power. Think about whatever illustration you want, and it probably applies. Another thing I want to tell you, too, is uncertain leadership provides a context for chaos and idolatry. When there's uncertain leadership, people who don't know what their values are, and they're sometimes leading by chasing the new hot thing. Um, They're leading by trying to figure out what's going to work, even in the church context. When there's uncertain leadership that doesn't have a laser focus on what God wants us to be focused on, it provides a context for chaos and people don't know what to do. And then it opens the door for idolatry because it's it's uncertain, it's undirected, it's unfocused. Um, Which I think leads to my next point, and that is this. A failure to teach and obey God's word leads to subtle paganism. (laughs) 
if what's at the center of what you're doing is not God's word and the desire to obey him, not the, just the desire to be smart, not the desire to um, know more than somebody else knows or know the clever things, but a desire to say, actually, I know God's word well enough to know the direction he wants me to go, and I'm on that path. A failure to teach God's word and obey God's word leads to subtle paganism. I think this is what has happened so much in the church in the last, well, forever, but certainly in increasing measure, that people aren't teaching God's word anymore. They're telling stories. Gosh, I used to hate this phrase growing up, but sermonettes for Christianettes, you know, it, it just doesn't, it's not changing anything. But when you teach God's word at a substantial level and you say, it's the authority of God's word, not my clever presentation or sermon scheme or decorations on the stage. When, when you know God's word, and literally my desire is at the end of a, a message um, for you to feel the weight of, of not my words or not my cleverness, but the, the weight of God's word, what it actually says for you to feel that on your shoulders, to go out of here and say, I'm going to, I'm going to obey that. I'm going to do that. Without that, it just leads to subtle paganism, subtle opportunities to say, oh, that's really nice, but I'll, I'm still going to show up an hour and 20 minutes a week and serve once a month. And then the rest of the time, I'm going to kind of pursue my Canaanite dream. Um, ungodly leaders are always providing ways to peacefully get along with the world. <laughs> that, that's what ungodly leaders do. They're, they're, they're trying to show you, here's how, it's, here's how you can kind of have enough of the accoutrements of, um, of Christianity, but still be okay with the world's value systems. And then one last point I'll make that I've alluded to before. You can be used by God and even empowered by the Spirit and not be spiritual. Um, God has to use Balaam's sometime. Balaam, he's a pagan. But God used him to bless Israel. And then he used his donkey. Now, neither one of them are spiritual. I'm going to tell you, Samson is not a spiritual giant. Samson never made a vow he didn't want to break. Samson has an entirely corrupt life, but God uses him to be faithful to deliver his people. Just because God's using you, just because God may use me on a Sunday morning to deliver a, a message um, that accurately communicates God's word and compels you and asks you to obey it, doesn't mean I'm spiritual. Because God can use Balaam's ass and Ken Wilson. Not much difference. God can use anyone, but he's looking for faithful leaders. He's looking for people who are not idolaters. He's looking for people who will leave a lasting spiritual impact because, to use the image from earlier, because you're playing the beautiful tune. You're not seeking to get ahead. You're trying to love others. You're, you're, you're laying your life down for others, even your enemies and and you're seeking to draw them to Christ. You're playing the beautiful tune. And none of us play it perfectly, but the tune is amazing. The tune is, is beautiful. It was played perfectly by Jesus Christ. 
He wants us to play it well. And so many times we're, we're either not even playing the tune, we're playing the world's tune, or we're playing it out of tune horribly. And it doesn't attract anyone. So here's some next steps, some things I'll leave you with. Remember this, the Lord is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. He'd rather bless, but he will discipline, and he's promised to do both. God will be faithful. And when we're faithful, he'll bless. And when we're not, he'll discipline us and graciously use the consequences of our own rebellion to draw us back to him because he's faithful to his people. And I want to remind you, idolatry is subtle and it's disastrous to bring ruin to your life. And it's so easy to point our finger at that tribe or that tribe or those Old Testament people and not recognize that everybody in the room, the people behind me and the people standing right here in my shoes are so susceptible to idolatry where I become the sinner and what I need becomes more important than what others around me need and how they need to see Christ in me in my family and in my marriage and in my colleagues. Idolatry is subtle and it's disastrous. And then finally, the Lord is looking for faithful servants who will want to prioritize knowing him and his son and and playing the beautiful tune of Jesus. Father, I pray that we would find ourselves challenged by the example that was so poorly set before us in the book of Judges and by so many throughout church history who've played your tune so poorly. Father, challenge us not to go there. But Father, I pray that you would as well compel us and challenge us to to live out our lives in ways that have a true spiritual impact on the people around us. Father, we desire to, to play the tune beautifully so that we can draw others towards you so that they will know that the tune is a tune of your love and your provision for them. Lord, I pray that we would rid ourselves and turn away from all of the values of the world that get in, in the way and, and we hear so clearly and they seem so simple and they seem so attractive. But our priority and our focus would be on loving you and living a life that, that pleases you. We pray all of that in the one who who played the tune perfectly, your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.